Right, a little disclaimer about this episode. So this was my first ever time recording on my own. And I was talking about Iron Maiden, a subject that I'm very familiar with. But I made uh, several errors as well. Um, and uh, those will become apparent when I start ranting about Iron Maiden singles later on in the episode. Oh yeah, one other thing. Uh, I haven't spoken about the new Iron Maiden live album yet, especially the two tracks that have been released so far. And there was a very good reason for that. I was going to wait until the album was actually released, which is today in real time, uh, tomorrow as I record this. But now there is an even better reason for that. I'll have a very special guest joining me in a few weeks' time to discuss the album in depth. It should be somebody familiar to most of you, uh, but we're going to let the album gestate for a couple of weeks before reviewing it. That's coming your way quite soon. It won't be next week, might not be the week after, but it'll be very soon on Feckin' Metal. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Feckin' Metal. I'm your host, Fergal Trainer. And today, this evening, tonight, well, it's the 15th of November as I record this, I am live without Annette. Who's Annette, you might ask? No, she's not my silent producer who sits in the background and has been a silent partner this whole time. Annette, I mean A-Nette. I'm talking about a, um, a fabric-based device that is used to catch um, tightrope walkers and circus acts as they attempt dangerous feats. Uh, yes, and Live Without Annette, I think was the name of a Van, he- uh, Van Halen live album or perhaps a video. Um, but yes, and of course I'm not live at all. Uh, I am recording in advance of when this is going to be released. But it's my first attempt ever at recording a podcast on my own uh, without a guest, without somebody to uh, ask questions to or to, you know, fill the majority of the episode with their stories, their insight, their expertise, whatever. But uh, today I have decided to attempt an episode on my own, the first ever time I've done this. And the topic of this episode is post-reunion Iron Maiden. And in this episode specifically, I would like to talk about songs which I feel don't get enough attention from the post-reunion Iron Maiden albums. Of course, when I say post-reunion, I'm talking about post-1999, when uh, singer Bruce Dickinson and guitarist Adrian Smith returned to Iron Maiden after both left uh, several years previously. Um, That resulted, obviously, in the reunion album Brave New World, and since then they have also released Dance of Death, A Matter of Life and Death, The Final Frontier, and their most recent album, which is now over five years ago, believe it or not, The Book of Souls. <clears throat> so, uh, but before that, I would just like to mention, um, I have been doing podcasts since March 2019, or at least that's when the first episodes were released. I, I've been in podcasts since, uh, recording podcasts since maybe late uh, 2018. And um One of the huge inspirations to me to think I could ever record a podcast were Nesbitt and Josh from Talking Maiden. Uh, I can't overstate how important they were on me to, you know, get to the point in my own life, my own head, where I thought maybe I could do a podcast. Maybe I could talk about music. Maybe I could release episodes of my own ramblings and thoughts and people might be interested. Uh, I happened upon Talking Maiden a few years ago. Uh, I think it was due to uh, Night Demon posting up on their feed on Facebook that Jarvis Leatherby had featured on an episode as a guest. And um, I went and listened to that episode, which I really enjoyed, and then went back and listened to all the episodes and listened to every single... (laughs) I won't say every single episode. I listened to I think I listened to every single episode of Talking Maiden apart from one. 
Uh, a little side point here. The only episode I didn't release, or sorry, the only episode I didn't listen to of Talking Maiden was uh, the episode where they focused on the Iron Maiden video games. Um, and as I, I discussed with uh, Jarvis Leatherby a few episodes ago, Iron Maiden video games are like the, the, the only aspect of Iron Maiden that I'm just not interested in whatsoever. Like I love the music, obviously. I love going to the shows. I love the merchandise for the most part. Um, and the whole you know buzz around the band and like i'm really really into iron maiden obviously yeah, they're my favorite band but iron maiden video games are something i could just never get interested in whether it was you know ed hunter or legacy of the beast or whatever the hell else they've had along the way uh i don't know what it is it's just when when they when they focus on a video game like that like like well like actually i do know what it is like i discussed with jarvis like a few weeks ago it's a uh, to me it's like what 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 am i listening to or sorry what am i playing here you like I, I know the music i've listened to whatever like but what am i playing exactly you know eddie is is a character he's featured on album covers but there's really no mythology there there's really no storyline there and it's like oh it's eddie you know in the setting of um the original iron maiden album or he's going into the ruskin arms or he's in egypt now and it's the pyramids and like i couldn't give a fuck to be honest (laughs) about iron maiden video games so sorry that's a sidetrack there but that's the only episode of talking maiden i didn't listen to and i'm sure nesbitt and josh did a great job on that Uh, nesbitt obviously is the king of the deep dive as i have christened them um previously and he does his due diligence and does so much research for each episode and it's very commendable the job he does and i'm sure it's probably the best ever podcast episode about iron maiden video games that's ever been recorded but i don't know that's where my fandom ends uh, i think everybody has a breaking point or a point where they kind of go ah here come on and uh, maybe with kiss fans it's it's the kiss casket and that's with a k of course where you could buy your own kiss themed coffin for when you die uh, and with with me with iron maiden it's the iron maiden video games i don't know i just can't extend my fandom that far oh sorry and the comics as well i'm, I'm not really interested in comics and uh, maybe when i was younger i used to like the beano and the dandy uh, topper uh, wizard and chips um and all those type of ones i had the old english uh, comic books but an iron maiden comic book uh, it's just not for me um anyway so i just wanted to go back to what i was originally saying is that nesbitt and josh from talking maiden were a massive inspiration to me that can't be overstated enough um about doing a podcast um you know to inspire me to feel that i had enough things to say and uh, that actually goes like back to when they actually allowed me to be a guest on their podcast back in the series of episodes they did for the x factor and just in general as a fan i was listening to it and going that is the type of shit i'm interested in i loved the deep dives i loved also the banter back and forth between nesbitt and josh i loved the way they approached it it was non-linear it wasn't chronological they kept it interesting um and as they went on, the format changed, you know, some albums were uh, discussed only over two episodes. And then as they went on, the likes of Brave New World was, was discussed over seven episodes. And I love the way that they changed and evolved as they went on. And uh, just I, I can't state enough how inspirational that podcast was to me in wanting to try it myself. And I'm completely different in my approach. I, I don't do the deep dives and I'm not Josh either. I'm not that kind of charismatic, funny, uh, quippy, one-liner, color color commentator person either. I'm me, I'm myself. Um, 
and it, this is kind of a bit daunting actually uh, now that I've said that doing a podcast on my own but uh, that was hugely inspirational to me and this podcast this episode is about Iron Maiden so I just thought I'd reference that and mention that because it should be mentioned and referenced because I don't know without without talking Maiden I don't know if I'd ever have, tr- have tried this myself so uh, thanks Nesbitt and Josh for all you did for uh, heavy metal podcasts and for Iron Maiden podcasts and it has inspired me to give this a go myself so thanks again but anyway I'm talking about post-reunion Iron Maiden so how did we get here I think everybody knows how we got here Uh, Adrian Smith left circa 89 1990 when the band were recording No Prayer for the Dying and uh, Steve Harris famously wanted to go back to Iron Maiden's roots and record a stripped down album after the kind of bombastic and uh, synth swamped um, album Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, Steve Harris wanted to go back to something much more basic and and they did, they did go back to something much more basic, the songs were far more basic there was nary a hint of a keyboard in most of those songs and um, even the stage show was like very, very bare, very barren Um, but Adrian Smith really wasn't buzzing off that whole thing at all, he was like, well you know, I think we've come very far in the last few years and why would we go backwards now? We should move forwards and he couldn't get into the zone for writing songs for No Prayer for the Dying so um, it was either amicable and he decided to leave or they got rid of him or somewhere in between but he eventually he left Iron Maiden around that time and he was obviously replaced by Yannick Gers and Iron Maiden went on to produce No Prayer for the Dying which for me, is probably one of my least favourite Iron Maiden albums. And then they want, went on to produce Fear of the Dark, which is my least favourite Iron Maiden album. And then Bruce Dickinson left. Bruce Dickinson was kind of fed up as well. He was like, look, uh, I want to do my own solo stuff. He had his own little solo experimentation with Tattooed Millionaire in 1990. And that was miles away, really, from what Iron Maiden were doing at the time. And um, he, he was just frustrated. Um, a lot of his songs didn't get chosen famously for Somewhere in Time. And then he kind of went along with what Steve Harris wanted for Seven Son of a Seven Son, but he wasn't quite satisfied with the execution of that album. He felt that it should have been more of a concept album. People will say Seven Son of a Seven Son is a concept album, but really deep down, is there actually a storyline? Is there actually a mythology to it? Um, or is it just convenient enough that a lot of the songs kind of relate to one another more or less Uh, I think the latter personally um, and I've heard Steve Harris in interviews kind of say that as well a lot of the songs relate to one another Um, but there is no mythology to it it's not like The Wall um, or as Bruce famously said at the time it's not like Operation Mindcrime by Queensryche which was released around the same year so Bruce was fed up by 93 uh, handed in his notice did one final tour with the band um, and they famously even killed him off on stage at the end. And if that wasn't enough, they killed him off on the single artwork for the live version of Hallowed Be Thy Name, where Eddie was piercing his uh, chest and his heart, presumably, with a trident. Um, so, yeah, Bruce Dickinson famously left, probably more famously than Adrian Smith in 93. And that left Iron Maiden without a singer. And obviously Blaze Bailey then stepped in. Sorry, I'm saying obviously for all of this stuff because I presume if you're listening to this, you're probably a fan of Iron Maiden. You probably know all this, but for maybe people who aren't or just in general, just to set the scene, I'm just kind of giving a bit of a background on it. Um, so we've got Blaze Bailey in the band, 95. They released The X Factor. Not a lot of people's cup of tea. I think it's a brilliant album. 98, they released Virtual Eleven. Uh, throughout both of 
those tours, Blaze's vocals weren't amazing. Uh, he couldn't really sing Bruce's songs particularly well. They did try to tailor the set list to suit his vocal style, which is obviously a much lower, much deeper register. He doesn't have the same range as Bruce. Everybody knew knows that, and, and presumably everybody knew that when he joined the band. Like I don't know how he could have done any rehearsals with Steve and the rest of the band where he belted out the trooper, you know, as well as Bruce could have done, or where he, you know, sang Two Minutes to Midnight really convincingly, um, because he, he simply doesn't sing like that. And, you know, maybe that was, I don't know, overlooked at the time because they wanted to change uh, how they sounded and they wanted a different approach. They wanted a fresh singer, a fresh singing style in the band. But eventually that became a bit of a problem because Iron Maiden's legacy, of course, was, you know, the... Uh, nine albums they'd released before Blaze joined the band and that's a hell of a lot of songs like probably about 90 songs or so or maybe slightly less but um, that was their legacy and when Blaze came in he couldn't really sing a lot of those songs so the set lists for the X Factor uh, in 95-96 were heavily weighted towards Blaze's songs and then again when Virtual Eleven was released in 98 uh, in the 1998 tour the set list was even more heavily weighted towards Blaze. So they had the X Factor to draw from, obviously, and then they had Virtual Eleven. So they were singing a lot of those songs, especially a lot of Virtual Eleven and a, a few Virtual, or sorry, a few, um, I suppose, almost about to say Virtual Ten, a few X Factor songs as well. And But Blaze couldn't really cut it as the singer of Iron Maiden, and that wasn't really his fault either. Like, you know, he has his own personal singing style, he has his own vocal range, and that's not his fault. Presumably that's what he brought to the band in the audition. audition. They still chose him as the singer of the band. He went on to sing on two albums and did two world tours with them. And then that was really the end of the road for Blaze. In the meantime, Adrian Smith had regrouped with Bruce Dickinson and released the album Accident of Birth in 1997. And then in 1998 released the album Chemical Wedding. Both albums were far closer to Iron Maiden's signature sound than... Either Adrian Smith or Bruce had been doing in recent times. Adrian obviously had his own solo projects. Bruce had just done the album Skunk Works, which was more of an alternative rock sounding album in 1996. And I think the uh, the magazine Classic Rock remarked that uh, in 1997, with Accident of Birth, Bruce Dickinson had released an Iron Maiden album better than Iron Maiden's own uh, X Factor from 1995. So, uh Bruce and Adrian were releasing albums that were very, very similar to the sound of the band they had recently left. And um, as a reflection on that, um, just having read Rob Halford's book, uh, regular listeners will know that I've read Rob Rob Halford's autobiography recently. He he admits that um, after he left Judas Priest, obviously he had a... I'm going to stop saying obviously, sorry. He had two solo projects. One was called Fight. They did two albums, much more hard heavy type of industrial type of music and then one was called two uh, with a digit two wo and neither of those outfits really sounded anything like judas priest but then he went on to form the band halford um with roy z who funnily enough was also the guitarist for bruce dickinson uh, on his albums um it wasn't even funnily enough he had heard bruce dickinson's solo albums liked how they sounded and he wanted roy z 
So, Rob Halford recruited Roy Z, released a couple of albums under the name Halford, and those albums sounded suspiciously like Judas Priest uh, to anybody listening. And he admits in his autobiography that it was basically an audition to rejoin Judas Priest. He regretted having left Judas Priest in the 90s, and he wanted to show the band that he could still do what he had done previously and that he could do it better than anybody else. So he released the albums uh, Resurrection and Crucible and basically did Judas Priest albums better than Judas Priest were doing at the time because both Judas Priest and and Iron Maiden follow very similar career paths in that their famous singer left in the 90s, they got a different singer, they released albums that didn't really sound like the classic sound of the band and then the famous singers returned and they returned to that classic sound. And... It's also quite similar that Bruce Dickinson had his own flirtations with a solo career, uh, tried different sounds out, and then reverted back to the sound he was familiar with. And Rob Halford did the same. He he did a few different solo projects and reverted back to the sound he was familiar with. So I wonder, uh, despite this never having been said in the press um, or in Bruce's book where he might have said it, was uh, him reverting back to the traditional Iron Maiden heavy metal style sound on Accident of Birth and Chemical Wedding, was that maybe even subconsciously an audition to rejoin Iron Maiden because it was so drastically different from what he had done on Skunk Works only a year previously when you're talking about Accident of Birth and then he went and drafted in Adrian Smith as well for those two albums. You would wonder to yourself, was he subconsciously auditioning to rejoin Iron Maiden having more or less failed as a solo artist uh, in the years that he had been away from the band? Anyway, regardless of whether or not that was the case, uh, Bruce and Adrian ended up rejoining Iron Maiden in 1999. At that time, they decided to do a reunion tour. They did the Ed Hunter tour. So Ed Hunter was the previously mentioned Iron Maiden video game they had released actually when Blaze was in the band, but they did a a revamped version when Bruce was in the band. And um, they went on tour and they did a Greatest Hits set and they actually... um, did a poll online amongst their fans and asked which songs would you like to hear on the Iron Maiden uh, Ed Hunter tour. And um, I think it might have even been called the Ed Hunt tour. I'm not sure. But um, they basically polled the fans and the fans gave in their answers and they played a set not of the entire set list that was voted by the fans. I think they asked the fans to vote their top 20 and they didn't play 20 songs on any of those shows. As far as I know, they played more like 17. But... uh, it was a massive success. The media were all out, you know, uh, lauding Iron Maiden, saying how brilliant they were and, you know, how great it was for Bruce to be back in the band and they had turned back time and um, the future was bright for Iron Maiden. Um, so after that tour, they got back together, they regrouped and they wrote a load of songs. And they even used some songs that Blaze Bailey had written back around the time just after Virtual Eleven. So I think those songs include uh, Blood Brothers, Dream of Mirrors. Uh, I can't think off the top of my head what else they include, but I think Blaze basically signed a, you know, non-disclosure agreement with the band, uh, got a bit of money for it, and he allowed them to take anything he'd written with the band and use it on Brave New World. And and they did, as far as I can gather from a few different sources, interviews over the years, uh, that's exactly what happened, especially with Blood Brothers and Dream of Mirrors. Oh, The Mercenary, I think, might have been another one as well. Um, So they used a few Blaze songs, but Adrian came back in and wrote The Wicker Man, and Bruce came back in and contributed his songwriting ideas as well. And they wrote an excellent album 
in Brave New World, which was released in 2000. Now, this is kind of the jumping on point for me uh, with Iron Maiden. So as I have mentioned in previous episodes of the podcast, specifically the first episode, um, I got into Iron Maiden via the Best of the Beast compilation. It was around 2002. My friend Kevin Daly, who was my first guest on this podcast and episode one of Feckin' Metal, uh, bought the double CD version of Best of the Beast. And that was a 34-track uh, greatest hits compilation basically which went in reverse chronological order so it was front loaded with the songs that blaze had done uh, the very first song was virus which was a newly released single to coincide with the album uh, the only new song on the album uh, and then it went backwards chronologically so it went back through the x factor fear to dark no prefer to dying etc etc all the way back to the soundhouse tapes which was the first ever iron maiden release uh, back in 1979 and um i i explored that album for you know what seemed like months but it was probably only a few weeks but i delved deeper and deeper into it i i had recorded it onto a mini disc and i just kept finding more and more songs that i really liked uh, i remember the first couple of songs i really liked were the clairvoyant and number of the beast but as i went on um virus sign of the cross Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, all these songs. Strange World, I remember. I love that version of the song. Uh, the version on Best of the Beast is the one from the Soundhouse tapes. Um, and it was later pointed out to me that the vocals by Paul Diano, uh, the initial Iron Maiden vocalist, I won't say original because they had a couple beforehand, but he was on the first album. Uh, Paul Diano's vocals were really out of tune on that. And that, that's not something I had ever noticed before, but I suppose when you go back and listen to it and you compare it to the uh, version that ended up on the first Iron Maiden album, Iron Maiden, uh, they do kind of sound a bit out of tune, but to me, that's that's the definitive version of that song. That's the song or the version that I heard first, and I love it. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm digressing here. So after Best of the Beast, I went and bought Brave New World. And the reason I brought bought Brave New World was because there were no songs from that album on Best of the Beast. Best of the Beast had been released in 1996, and Brave New World was obviously released in 2000, so there was nothing on uh, Best of the Beast that was on Brave New World. So I wanted to kind of get the best value for money um, going out and buying Iron Maiden albums. So I was like, well, this one is their new album. Uh, even in 2002, it was still their new album. Um, so I'm going to buy this. And me and my friend Kevin Daly went back to his house and listened to it and... The Wicker Man blared out of the speakers, uh, Ghost of the Navigator, and, um, you know, all of those songs, uh, Brave New World, the song itself, uh, Blood Brothers, and it was just one song after another of just hit after hit after hit, as far as we, was, we were concerned. Um, and it was just, it just sounded, to me, it sounded so different to the likes of Number of the Beast, and it sounded so different to even um, Seven Sun. It was, it was just new and fresh and a very clean sound off the album and I would like to discuss a couple of songs off that album that I really like that aren't really spoken about too much and one of those songs is actually the final track on the album the thin line between love and hate so I have a bit of a story to go along with this song um, I had the album I'd been listening to it and you know with an album like that I think it's 69 minutes in length I hadn't really listened to it all the way through. I, I was making my way through it and I was getting to know the songs and, you know, I, I got maybe up as far as, uh, probably as far as Out of the Silent Planet, which is the second last song on the on the album. And um, 
my bedroom when I was when in the house I was growing up in my bedroom was right beside the toilet and I went into the toilet one day obviously when Out of the Silent Planet had been playing and through the wall in the toilet I heard the thin line between love and hate playing and I was kind of listening through the wall and I was like fucking hell this is I've never heard this before and I, I, I probably didn't realise I hadn't listened all the way to the end of the album and uh, I rushed back in from the toilet and I just heard Bruce singing those wonderful vocals of like I will hope my soul will fly and I will live forever. Um, <laughs> you might ask yourself, what can I offer on an Iron Maiden podcast that no one else has offered before? Well, I can offer my acapella vocals of the thin line between love and hate. But um, yeah, I rushed back into the bedroom and I was like, this song, this this is the song on the album. Like, I think it's probably my favorite song on the album. I, I often say The Wicker Man is one of my favorite Iron Maiden songs, but the thin line between love and hate it's buried down on track number 10 on Brave New World. It has that wonderful heavy guitar intro um, and then Bruce singing those vocals in an almost folky style. I think Bruce claimed in an interview before that it was his and Steve's tribute to Jethro Tull, both of which are like, sorry, of which both are huge fans. Um, and I can hear kind of a small aspect of what he's saying in that the verses are, are sung in a, a very folky style, but the pre-chorus and the chorus uh, are just unbelievable and so catchy. And if you haven't listened to the Tin Line Between Love and Hate, I'm just going to play you a bit of it now and just show you exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, so that's the thin line between love and hate by Iron Maiden. It's on the album Brave New World, and it's the final track on the album. I was just talking about it, and to me, it's just like a such an uplifting and positive song. Um, I don't believe in God personally. I don't believe in religion or anything like that. And when Bruce says, "I will pray, my soul will fly, and I will live forever," I don't know necessarily if he's talking about religion or if he's talking about something different. But to me, whatever reason he wrote those lyrics or whatever reason sorry uh those lyrics were written uh to me it, it's always been such an uplifting message and it gets you know when it gets to the very end of the song and bruce says that line the thin line between love and hate i'm just gonna play it now some of Bruce's best vocals ever and I think personally maybe Bruce peaked on Iron Maiden albums on Brave New World and 
in Iron Maiden in a live setting. I think he probably peaked around the um, Somewhere Back in Time tour. If you listen to Flight 666 and compare that with maybe Rock and Rio and Live After Death, I think personally, vocally, he peaked around then. But on albums, I've never heard him sound better than The Thin Line Between Love and Hate. So that is my first Iron Maiden song that is, I'm not going to say overrated, I don't like, or sorry, I'm not going to say underrated. I don't like that term. Uh, it kind of insinuates that there's this general rating uh, scheme that we all adhere to and certain things are rated highly and certain things are rated lower and, you know, whatever. But I will say that it's not spoken about too much um, and it's one of those songs that's possibly overlooked and that's possibly due to its positioning on the album. So that's Iron Maiden. The Thin Line Between Love and Hate, number 10 on the Brave New World album, the reunion album from Iron Maiden, um, and that's song number one. So I'm going to move on now to Dance of Death. So uh, Dance of Death was the second album uh, in the reunion era, but the first album to be released when I was actually a fan of Iron Maiden. So I got into Iron Maiden in 2003. Two, um, I went to see them in download in 2003 and they hadn't yet released Dance of Death but it was on the cards, it was about to be released and they actually played the song Wildest Dreams at that show and um, I want to make a more general point here about the singles that Iron Maiden chose to release from, uh, from Dance of Death onwards actually personally I think in each case from Dance of Death all the way to Book of Souls they chose the worst song on the album to be released as the single. Now, you might think that's a bit sensationalist, or you might disagree with me massively, and that's fair enough, but let me make my case. So, you've got Dance of Death, an album that has uh, 11 songs on it, uh, released in 2003, and of all the songs that they decided to pick, they chose Wildest Dreams. Um, The lyrics, to me, are kind of a bit inane, kind of pseudo uplifting not quite like the thin line between love and hate but almost like you know we're going to write an uplifting catchy song and it's going to be a single and bruce is saying i'm on my way out on the road again i'm on my way it's like i'm sorry bruce but like that that's not enough for me um you know you've got songs like the trooper fear the dark the clairvoyant and you're singing this kind of inane happy-go-lucky i don't know what it is uh But every single other song on that album, I think, would have made a better single. Now, you might argue again that the songs were too long. But, like, I know Rainmaker was the the second single. Put that out first. Jesus Christ. It's catchy as fuck. The intro guitar riff is unbelievable. Um, It's just a, a way better song. No More Lies. Again, the vocals are so much better. The vocals on Wildest Dream sound strained and forced. And I think Bruce sounds like he's, you know, pushing himself to his limits. I'm not sure if it's the key that it's in or what it is. But to me, it just sounds uncomfortable. The singing sounds uncomfortable. Uh, I would have chosen Monsegur as a single over that. Dance of Death, Gates of Tomorrow. Don't even really like that song. It's much better. New Frontier, catchy as fuck. Passchendaele, go for it. Release an eight-minute song as your single. Hopefully, it will end up on Koran. Who knows? Uh, Face in the Sand, I'll get to that later. Uh, Age of Innocence, Journeyman. Any of those songs would have made a better single. But no, they released Wildest Dreams. And to me, at the time, when I heard it in... uh, Donington Park in 2003. It's the best concert I've ever been to in my life. All I can say is that I was just massively underwhelmed. 
massively underwhelmed at the choice of song and massively underwhelmed that if they're going to play one new song to the old site of the Monsters of Rock Festival that they chose to play that one. It just is not a great song, I'm afraid. Um, I'll move on to the next album. This song is a lot better, I will say, than Wildest Dreams, but A Matter of Life and Death is a fantastic album and they chose Different World. Again, I nearly would have picked anything else over it. I know the songs are much longer. Maybe they could have done a stripped down version or like a shortened version uh, like they did with Angel and the Gambler, although the less said about that, the better. Uh, But I mean, just off the top of my head, I would have chosen These Colors Don't Run, The Pilgrim, uh, For the Greater Good of God. All of those would have been a much better single than Different World. Um, Again, I was kind of, when when that album um, was released, no, that wasn't the first single at all bollocks i've made a mistake here it was reincarnation of Bren- benjamin brig uh, and that song was actually pretty good um so i i'm talking out of my ass um shit okay uh, i've taken some time to reevaluate my theory and of course i made the massive error that um Different World was the first single released from uh, A Matter of Life and Death, which of course it wasn't. It was Reincarnation or The Reincarnation of Benjamin Brigg, which was actually a really good song. Uh, so that uh, shoots my theory to pieces. Um, but let's persevere and pretend that that didn't even exist. Uh, so you move on to uh, The Final Frontier and you've got El Dorado. Again, El Dorado is another song where I feel Bruce sounds uncomfortable singing those vocals. Um especially in the chorus he seems like he's really straining to hit those notes and personally i think it would have been better if they just left a bloody song off the album and you know he didn't have to strain so hard to reach those notes and i felt he really had to strain live i remember going to see um the final frontier world tour leg one which only featured one song from the final frontier which was el dorado the new single and uh they also focused on the post-reunion albums which was really good and I really enjoyed and I've never seen a tour like that since Um, I kind of wish they'd do that again maybe Um, but El Dorado was just a I don't know I just thought it was quite a poor song there was like lyrical references to the recession it was kind of cringy lyrics and I really felt that like Coming Home or uh, The Alchemist or the Final Frontier, if they chopped off Satellite 15, would have been far better singles there. Um, so the pattern continues. Forget that I said that it was a different world on uh, A Matter of Life and Death. And then you continue to the most recent album, which of course is the uh, Book of Souls, which was released in 2015. I have a story about that. I was away in Sweden at a festival, uh, Sabaton Open Air, in 2015. And my friends and I were staying in a hotel and we were in the hotel room and I got my live update from, well, not live update, you know, I got an update from blabbermouth.net, which I visit every single day and uh, have done for about 15 years, I'd say. Um, it's, you know, it it gets a lot of uh, flack, that website, and rightly so. They're massive uh, clickbait merchants, which I generally dislike quite a lot. But 
it, with the blabbermouth you kind of stay for the comments and it used to be a lot worse than it was it was the wild west back in the day until they made people sign in through a facebook login in order to be able to comment um and now it's a bit more um civilized but back in the day with uh, riot act 666 i don't know if anyone remembers that but um there was a guy called riot act 666 uh, was his username or i assume it was a he i'm not sure maybe i'm being sexist um but Riot Act 666 used to um, post up beneath any uh, mention of a new album being released by a band. He was like, first day buyer. And then everyone used to jump on him um, and, and slate him for that. And uh, became he became a kind of a character on Blabbermouth. But the, the comments used to be ruthless and horrendous on Blabbermouth back in the day. And now it's, it's far more civilized with Facebook. But it's still an entertaining place to go and look at the comments. And they deliberately post up clickbait. And they deliberately post up like racist comments from James Kotak, a uh, former member of the Scorpions. Or, you know, pro-Republican comments from James Kotak former member of the Scorpions or, you know, ridiculous, stupid stuff from James Kotak, former member of the Scorpions, um, and other people as well who generate clicks. Um, and uh, they uh, they deliberately do that, and that's, that's what they specialize in. But it also delivers a lot of heavy metal news. Anyway, I was in a hotel room. It's 2015. I'm at Sabaton Open Air, and the new single from Iron Maiden is released, and it's Speed of Light. And God almighty i i just think that's oh, you know they're my favorite band ever but it's possibly the worst song they've ever done uh next to weekend warrior and some of those fear of the dark songs you know uh, maybe one or two off um uh no prayer or whatever but like speed of light is is it's just a poor poor song and i remember being so disappointed at the time that it was released at all and especially that it was released as the first single from the album and um that's kind of gonna wrap up my my um thoughts on they released the worst song in the album and let's forget the mistake i made um as the first single and they've been doing that for a while uh, i mean just look at look at book of souls if eternity should fail give me that give me uh, give me death or glory give me tears of a goddamn clown uh, as the first single of the album uh, I know that gets a lot of criticism I think it's a great song um, but the oh, speed of light I don't know what it is it's just th- 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 not very melodic not particularly interesting guitar it seems like a song that again they were like oh let's put this out maybe we'll get played on radio it's 2015 as you love to say you haven't been getting played on radio since the beginning of time stop chasing it steve stop chasing it whoever the hell else just leave it you know let sleeping dogs lie um it's not going to happen now it never happened you're a different band than that you don't need that you don't need a hit single put out your best song instead put out fucking empire of the clouds as your single who cares don't put out rubbish like speed of light chasing something that you never had and you'll never get uh, the elusive radio play or support from radio or support from the mainstream media. I mean, the mainstream media have changed their stance on Iron Maiden in the last, I'd say, two decades, at least the last decade and a half, where they're almost like the heavy metal darlings now. Um, They're still not going to get played on the radio. Everybody knows that. I hope when the next album gets released... We all know it's recorded and ready to go. I hope they don't just trot out something like El Dorado or Speed of Light or Wildest Goddamn Dreams. Um, I, I hope they put out a bloody 17-minute long song, um, something like Rhyme the Ancient Mariner, and say, how do you like those apples? 
Spotify, uh, radio, or whoever the hell else they're trying to please at this stage. I really don't know. But anyway, we've done the overlooked song from Brave New World, The Thin Line Between Love and Hate. So the next album chronologically was Dance of Death. I got sidetracked there on a massive rant about Iron Maiden singles, but I would like to go back to Dance of Death now. And I know this is a song that um, has got a good bit of coverage on Talking Maiden, but I think in general, this song isn't really spoken about very much. And when you look at the album Dance of Death, like the songs people talk about are Rainmaker, No More Lies, Montsegur, the song Dance of Death, and Passchendaele as well. And Journeyman, because it was kind of a, ooh, it's acoustic. Ooh, oh, they're doing an acoustic song. But uh, the song I would like to talk about is Face in the Sand. And to me, that is one of those real strong hidden gems on Iron Maiden albums post-reunion and it's down towards the end of the album it's number nine maybe if you're not patient maybe if you're from the Spotify area you haven't listened that far in the album uh, but you should because Face in the Sand is a bloody fantastic song and somebody actually mentioned these lyrics on on Twitter recently I was um, on the feckin metal cast um Twitter account and they were saying and I agreed with them the chorus of Face in the Sand or the pre-chorus actually is um, Bruce singing so I watch and I wait and I pray for an answer an end to the strife and the world's misery but the end never came and we're digging the graves and we're loading the guns for the kill that part where he starts singing so I watch and I wait and I pray for an answer is spine tinglingly good it's Bruce at his most emotive, it's Bruce at his most expressive, and I think his vocals here are so powerful, and the melody is so catchy, that it just, it's a gem buried in the second half of the album, and I would like you to listen to this if you've never listened to it, and for that reason I'm going to play you a clip now of Face in the Sound. Okay, so that was Face in the Sand from Dance of Death, released in 2003. And in general, the lyrics, I think, seem to refer to war and its coverage on television. Um, and the kind of, um, even back in 2003, the kind of fast food nature of uh, world news. And everybody's waiting for something to happen. Everybody's waiting for something to see. Lunatics waiting for bigger disasters. Everyone's watching news on TV, whatever. But it, it seems to be about the like fast food nature of world news and disaster and war. And in the chorus, he's kind of saying, can the end be at hand? Is the face in the sand? Future memory of our tragedy. Is that it? Is that all we have? The dead man lying down face in the sand um 
and we're just consuming this we're just consuming it like it's a tv show or a series or something uh, but i love that song and it's one of my favorite from the album um, and it's not really one of the most talked about songs so that's the aim it is to kind of shed light um or not shed light shine a light actually on those songs that are um not spoken about as much again I, i'm trying to avoid the word underrated i don't like the word maybe that's me i just have hang-ups about shit um so i'm gonna move on we've obviously done uh, obviously obviously we've done uh brave new world we've done down to death and now we're gonna move on to a matter of life and death iron maiden seem to be obsessed with the word death uh, if you look back through their discography you have got live after death in 1985 no prayer for it no prayer for the dying 1990 uh, a real live dead one 93 obviously that was a combination of a real live one and a real dead one but again it's the word dead in an album you got dance of death 2003 death on the road again it was the tour of dance of death but still death on the road 2005 a matter of life and death 2006 and the most recent live album uh, nights of the dead again there's relevance to all of these names but it just seems like they are uh, kind of obsessed uh, morbidly obsessed uh, with that word um that's probably redundant to say morbidly obsessed with death but anyway matter of life and death famous film uh, war film which i've never seen um but that is where i imagine i'm gonna guess it was steve harris that's where i imagine steve harris got the name obviously they are very often inspired by films uh specifically older kind of classic films as well and they they come into the lyrics and the album titles a lot so this album was um was a very very strong post reunion album I don't really like ranking things. I will say that Brave New World is my favourite Iron Maiden album of all time. Uh, and Peace of Mind is up there. And The X Factor is up there. And Number of the Beast is up there. And maybe Seventh Son is up there as well on a given day. So that's, I think, a top five. But A Matter of Life and Death rates quite highly as well. And it is because there really isn't... Mm, different World maybe is probably the weakest song in the album. But beyond that... I don't think there's a bad song on the album. Um, you've got classics like uh, For the Greater Good of God, which was featured in the Legacy of the Beast tour. You've got really, really strong epics like Brighter Than a Thousand Suns and The Longest Day. And in general, the songwriting is just top-notch on this album. You've got the These Colors Don't Run song, which... Uh, I like to think was inspired by um, the egging incident at the Ozfest in 2005, where Bruce Dickinson was mouthing off on stage each night um, about, we're Iron Maiden, we're relevant, we don't need a reality TV show to be relevant in 2005. <laughs> um, and uh, in fairness, he probably shouldn't have been saying that crap when they were the special guests on the Ozfest, but that's Bruce. Um, and on the, f I think it's the final night, maybe I'm romanticising it, I can't remember. I'm going to say on the final night of the tour, um, their sound was cut off multiple times and they uh, had eggs thrown at them at uh, from the side of the stage. And it was Sharon Osbourne, obviously the manager of Ozzy and, and the organiser of the Ozfest since uh, the get-go. Uh, Sharon Osbourne uh, instructed lots of different people to egg Iron Maiden on stage and cut their sound multiple times as retaliation to Bruce 
who was mouthing off about reality TV and taking little slide eggs at uh, the Osbournes, the reality TV show that the Osbournes uh, did back in the early 2000s. Again, yeah, I don't think Bruce should have been saying that on stage. I still have a bit of a grudge with Sharon for egging Iron Maiden on stage as well. Um, not a big fan of Sharon. Oh, you know, but there's so many different facets to it. It's, it's very intricate, like... I think if if it weren't for Sharon, Ozzy Osbourne would have died probably two decades ago. But then there's the whole thing, like, you know, is she wheeling him out on stage? His 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 No More Tours two tour, as ridiculous as that sounds, No More Tours two tour, uh, which was supposed to be on in 2018, has now been pushed to 2022. There were a number of health related and coronavirus related reasons why it didn't go ahead as scheduled but um ozzy osbourne in 2022 on stage i think he'll be about 74 or something like that and and people are often quick to say sharon osbourne wheeling him out on stage uh lining her pockets buying another mansion in los angeles blah 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 but then again if it weren't for her there's no doubt in my mind he would be dead he would be dead and buried she's kept him alive so it's hard to it's hard to take a stance on Sharon Osbourne uh, with that. Uh, I don't like that she egged Iron Maiden, but Bruce was wrong to to talk shit about Ozzy on stage as well. So I don't know. There were there's there's wrong and right all over that story. Anyway, uh, famously, uh, Bruce Dickinson on the stage that night after being egged was like uh, shouted into the microphone it's like we're Iron Maiden and these colours don't fucking run and the year after that they released a song called these colours don't run anyway that's a great song Um, I can't remember my original point with that but the song that I would like to discuss is called The Legacy it's the final track on the album Uh, it has a slow start a little bit of an acoustic kind of start the kind that Iron Maiden have become famous for post-reunion, the kind that a lot of people bemoan and say, oh, all their songs start with this acoustic slow start and then they build up and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, The Legacy is the song that I'd like to discuss on this as the lesser appreciated track, the one that most people maybe don't mention or you don't hear talked about too often. And I actually have the same story as I did with uh, Thin Line Between Love and Hate as I do with The Legacy. This is ridiculous, but it's actually true. In that I had listened to the album, and I, again, I probably thought I'd listen to it till the end. And I was in the toilet beside my bedroom, and the speakers were blaring, playing the legacy. But it got to the final bit of the song, and you know the bit I mean. It's Bruce gone. We seem destined to live in fear, and some that would say Armageddon is near. And the melody completely changes, and the tempo completely changes, and Bruce goes into this unbelievable set of vocals at the end of the song. It's not a verse, it's not a chorus, it's just a little um, bit at the end of the song. It's an extra bonus piece of brilliance right at the end of the album, at the end of the song, The Legacy. The Legacy in itself, which is about a 10-minute song. And I'm just going to play that part of the song because, to me... I think um, A Matter of Life and Death peaks at that point where Bruce starts that uh, those particular vocals. So I'm just going to play those now. Oh, 
So yes, that's the legacy. It's from A Matter of Life and Death, and um, it shares a similar story in my own personal Iron Maiden history with the song uh, The Thin Line Between Love and Hate. I seem to be going to the toilet a lot as a... Uh, as a teenager and a 20-something year old and missing out on the best bits of Iron Maiden songs and hearing them through the wall. But that's actually how it happened. So there you are. Do with that as you will. Um, but yeah, that's the legacy. We've covered a matter of life and death. And now we are on to uh, The Final Frontier, which was released in 2010. 2010. I put THs in places where they don't belong and I don't say them in places where they do. Um, I don't know why. So uh, this album was uh, it was about five years after, um, or sorry, four years after the uh, the fucking a matter of life and death, and it was a long wait for me. Anyway, it's the longest I've ever had to wait for an Iron Maiden album as a fan. Although it's not as long as the wait between that and Book of Souls, and it's now even longer now between Book of Souls and whatever the new album will be whenever that's released. But this was a long time coming for me. And I was an avid Iron Maiden fan at this point. Um, I saw them on the tour before the album was released. As I said, the Final Frontier Tour Leg 1, where they focused a lot on Brave New World. And they played a couple of um, Matter of Life and Death songs. And it was great. You got to hear a lot of those. Uh, And they played a couple from uh, Dance of Death as well. They played Dance of Death, actually. Uh, And you got to hear a lot of those songs that are newer. And at the time were like really new and fresh. Um, They played the bloody Ghost of the Navigator. I never thought I'd get to hear that song live. Um, after you, you know what Iron Maiden, you know how they are. Uh, when they have a new album out, they play six songs from that album. And with Brave New World in 2000, it was no different. They played six songs and they experimented with a couple of others that didn't really stay in the set. But there were six staples of that set that they played at every show, if I'm not mistaken. And one of those was Ghost in the Navigator. But if there were ever a, a track that I would consider an album track that I will never hear again on an Iron Maiden tour, it would have been Ghost of the Navigator. And lo and behold, when I checked the set list for Final Frontier Tour Leg 1, uh, prior to the album being released, I saw that they were playing Ghost of the Navigator and I was beside myself. I was over the moon uh, and other cliches like that. Um, and it was fucking unbelievable live. Just such a great song. Such a, such a great song. Um, I remember reading back in 2003, um, I referenced this magazine a couple of times on the podcast, but it was such an essential and crucial magazine in my Iron Maiden education and just in my musical upbringing, I will say. Uh, Kerrang! magazine released an Iron Maiden special in 2003 and it covered all of the albums and printed historical interviews and current interviews with members of the band and it was just a tome of information for an Iron Maiden fan it was 132 pages long I still have it I think it's in my parents house I never got rid of it I got rid of most of my music magazines but I never got rid of that and I never will uh, it's just a, it, it holds a special place in my heart and anyway um, whoever was reviewing the Iron Maiden album Brave New World at the time stated that with Ghosts of the Navigator Iron Maiden have um, what did he say? Iron Maiden in Ghost of the Navigator have more time changes than ACDC have mustered in an entire career. Uh, and <laughs> I've always remembered that and it's just stood out in my mind. I love it. It's brilliant. Um, anyway, so they played that song and they played lots of recent songs. But I'm getting off the point here entirely. I'm, I'm supposed to be choosing my song from uh, The Final Frontier, which is the song that I think is brilliant and 
people don't talk about too much. Um, and I'm going to go with Starblind. Uh, so this is, again, towards the end of the album. And the reason I'm choosing Starblind is because of the ridiculously catchy chorus um, that Bruce sings in this song. And it's so powerful that when I started listening to this album, uh, you know, you got Satellite for 15, Final Frontier, El Dorado, Mother of Mercy, quite a good song, although he sounds vocally strained, Coming Home, Belter of a Ballad, and uh, ballads are something that Iron Maiden really don't do very often. The Alchemist is all right. Uh, decent song, catchy. Isle of Avalon, not much time for it. Then it got to Starblind, and, you know, the album's probably been on for about 50 minutes at this point, or 45 minutes. A traditional Iron Maiden album would have been finished by that point. But there's just such a ear-meltingly good chorus on this that it just made up for everything. It made up for Isle of Avalon, a song which I don't think I've ever gone into and I don't know if I ever will. Um, and this is it right now. This is Starblind by Iron Maiden. Okay, so that was Starblind, as I mentioned, and that is track number seven on uh, The Final Frontier. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, so we're not counting Satellite 15 as a separate track. And um, It's my pick of um, lesser spoken about tracks on post-reunion Iron Maiden albums. I just love the chorus in that song, but in general, I just love the feel of the song, the atmosphere that it creates, and... Um, I think Bruce is doing quite well. He does. He still does sound a bit strained on that song, a bit strained in the chorus. But to me, if you haven't listened to Starblind, go and listen to it. By the way, I'm going to add all of these um, lesser spotted maiden. Um, reminds me of the <laughs> reminds me of the program Lesser Spotted Ulster, um, which was a TV program on UTV, um, a Northern Irish television station that we used to get in the Republic of Ireland for many years, although we don't get it anymore due to some television contractual rights. But um, there was a program called Lesser Spotted Ulster on television. It must have been on for at least 15 years. And there were multiple episodes per season or series. And uh, it was a documentary-based program. And it was all about lesser spotted Ulster. So Ulster obviously is a province in Ireland. It consists of nine counties, six of which are in Northern Ireland and, and three in the, the Republic of Ireland. Um, and I remember thinking years into it going, surely all of fucking Ulster has been spotted by now. Um, <laughs> but this is lesser spotted maiden. And Starblind is my uh, latest addition to the lesser spotted maiden uh, playlist that I'm curating now. Um, okay, so that's final frontier and that's going to bring us to the last album currently available in post reunion iron maiden albums that's a terrible sentence apologies um the most recent really the most recently released iron maiden album and that is book of souls which was released in 2015 um uh, the hotel story about speed of light and all that um yeah so book of souls is spread over two discs the first time Iron Maiden have ever done that with a studio album. Ambitious, maybe, although at this point, 
I don't know if they could do anything to displease their fans, really. Um, people are going to buy or listen to or go to Iron Maiden regardless. Um, and I think they're just going to continuously generate new fans, either based on their legacy or just based on the aura that surrounds the band. Um, and I don't really know if it matters if they release a two-disc, 100-minute album in, in 2015. I don't know if that's really going to put off anybody. But I, I love this album. I went, I went to see them four times on this tour. Um, twice on the first leg, twice on the second leg. Um, where did I see them? I saw them in um, Dublin, Liverpool, Download, and in, in Gothenburg. And they were just great shows. Bruce had recovered from cancer. It was just so uplifting. Everyone was so happy that Bruce was back, fit, and ready to go. I think the album was actually delayed by about a year because of all of this. Uh, should have been out probably a year previous. Um, but especially when they played the likes of Blood Brothers live on those shows, it was it was just um, a powerful moment. Uh, one particular time, I may have said this on the podcast already, but it, it bears repeating. Bruce was playing, or Iron Maiden were playing in Gothenburg, and um, Bruce was about to go into his pre-song patter before Blood Brothers. He did a little bit of a, a speech on stage before he sang Blood Brothers. And um, at this point, on this particular show, the crowd were so loud, the crowd wouldn't shut up, and they just kept chanting Maiden, 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 Maiden. And Bruce was actually brought to tears. And he didn't do any of the pre-song patter. He just went in the Blood Brothers. But it was just a powerful moment. And I have very, very good memories of the Book of Souls tour, both in 2016 and 2017. And I love the album. But there are songs on the album uh, that uh, people don't really talk about too much. Um, so, you know, the popular ones on the album are um, Empire of the Clouds, which is obviously an 18 minute long song. Uh, if Eternity Should Fail, the opening track and a great track. The Red and the Black, which is about 13 minutes long itself. And The Book of Souls, the title track on the album. But uh, I'm choosing Tears of a Clown as my sleeper hit on The Book of Souls. Now, I know they included this in the live set in 2016. They dropped it for 2017. I was delighted to hear it in 2016 because it's almost like a pop song, I'll say. Uh, it's a pop song in its structure. Um, you know, it's very, you know, hook-based. Um, the melody in the chorus is very catchy. And uh, apparently it's about Robin Williams and... Some people say the lyrics are kind of a bit cack-handed and, you know, Steve Harris wrote this and maybe the, the lyrics, uh, you know, aren't as poetic as they could have been when it deals with such a delicate and sensitive topic and subject. But I was very disappointed when they dropped this from the live set list in 2017. This is one of my favorite songs on the album. I think it's a powerful vocal by Bruce. I think the subject matter is something very interesting and new and different for Iron Maiden about writing about the suicide of a celebrity. So this is a clip from Tears of a Clown from The Book of Souls. Okay, so that was Tears of a Clown. Uh, you know, maybe you 
don't like that song as much as I do, but I love it. I didn't want to pick any of the obvious ones from the album, of course, um, so I picked that one. And that's actually going to wrap this episode up. So we've gone through all of the post-reunion Iron Maiden albums from Brave New World through Dance of Death, through my own stupid mistakes about A Matter of Life and Death, through The Final Frontier, through The Book of Souls, and now it's half twelve at night and I really should go to bed because I have to be in work tomorrow. Um, So I'm going to wrap it up. This episode will be available on... uh, where are we now? It's gone past midnight, so it's the 16th. Uh, doesn't, why am I telling you? If you're either listening to it or you're not. Uh, this episode is going to be out on the 20th of uh, November, which it should be now if you're listening to this. Next week on the 27th of November, I am going to have uh, a singer from a band who has been out of action for many years, uh, came back to the stage under a pseudonym in 2017, now has released an album in 2020 under the original name. It's gotten rave reviews across the board this band is american power metal and i can't give you any more clues than that again the episode is not recorded i have full faith that it will be i was chatting to the singer i did a test uh, zoom call with him because he'd never used zoom in his life never used skype and he's never done a podcast before either so this is a massive exclusive for feckin' metal um that's coming next week on the 27th. This is going to wrap it up for Feckin' Metal. And for once, I'm just going to play it with the theme tune of Feckin' Metal. This is Kyle McNeil from Seven Sisters playing the Feckin' Metal theme tune. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week.